Hello everyone, welcome to the Garden Organic Podcast. I'm Sarah Brown and I'm joined by Chris Collins, our Horticultural Advisor. For the next 30 minutes we'll be talking about organic growing. But before we do, I want you to join with us in celebrating our 10,000 all-time listens. That means over the past few months, over 2,000 people across the world tuned in each month to our Garden Organic Podcasts. Thank you, every one of you. Chris and I are loving sharing our enthusiasm for the organic way. And we hope that our chats, interviews and postback questions are helping you in your organic growing. This month, we've slightly changed the format. Chris will be on holiday, so we put together an episode on just one theme and one close to our heart, organic food. We've got chefs and scientists sharing their knowledge. And as an added bonus, a long and fascinating interview with Garden Organics president, Professor Tim Lang. He's advised governments around the world on food policy. He talks to us about food security and food banks, as well as the serious problems of malnutrition and obesity. To listen to this extended and exclusive interview, just click on Tim Lang, the unpruned interview, which sits alongside this podcast. So Chris, since we're talking about food, what are you eating this month from your balcony and from your allotment? Well, it's bonanza time really, isn't it? I'm getting cucumbers every day, I've got courgettes coming, I've got an endless supply of greens, like lettuce, salad, rocket, obviously fresh salad every night in the Collins household. Um, yeah, it's all, all good, all good and bountiful, but you know, there's nothing that tastes better than fresh food off the allotment, I is there? I, I can't think of anything else that tastes as good, but is it as good for you as well, and nutritionally? Well... I'm glad you asked that because actually there's been discussion about this, whether organic food actually is better for you. And I've been reading recent research from Newcastle University and they have, without doubt, have come down to the fact that yes, it is better for you. Now, they analysed grains, meat and dairy. These are the staples of your diet. Okay. And the grains, such as the wheat, which goes into your organic bread, actually contain 60% more antioxidants. So that's the organic grains contain these extra antioxidants. That's quite a hefty amount. Well, it is. And these are the important chemicals which help repair your cell damage. Now, we're going to be hearing a lot more about that later from Andrew Collins. Mm-hmm. But even just eating a, a slice of organic bread is going to do you more good. They then looked at meat and dairy. Now, these are from animals that have been pasture-fed, and both meat and dairy hold greater amounts of omega-3. These are the fats, again, these are the long-chain fats which are actually good for your body. But, Chris, another interesting fact is that non-organic food and crops have actually lost their goodness over the years. So for the past 50 years, the government has tested staple fruit and vegetables to check for their nutritional content. The drop-off in mineral, protein and other nutrient value is quite remarkable. Why? You may well ask. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Why? (laughs) This is because farmers are understandably market-led. So they're growing varieties which supermarkets want, i.e. their consistency in size and in shape. They travel well. They have a long shelf life. They're not necessarily grown for their nutritional content. So it almost is. It's almost so they fit on the shelf and they rotate, they sell. So it's, so it's about taking up spaces in supermarkets and selling on quick so they can put stuff back out again. Exactly. So they're not grown for their nutrient or for their flavour. 
I always think when I eat fresh off the allotment, I can, there's a little hint of the taste of soil in that food. You know that earthy yeah. sort of, that you never get, you never get that with supermarket foods. It just adds that little extra bang to it, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. So that's two reasons really why to eat organically or why organic food is better for you. And of course, Sarah, no pesticides. Exactly, Chris. And one of the main concerns about pesticides is obviously it's they're damaging to the environment, but the other main concern is our own pesticide intake. Now, there's a lack of long-term research on how these minute amounts, by the time they get to our body, they are minute amounts, but how they react to our body. So you could be eating food that's grown with pesticides, those chemicals will get inside your body for 30, 40 years, but no one's done the research to see how they affect your body. So we're in the dark about this then, really? Very much so. And another thing is that farmers have an arsenal of pesticides. They have weapons to fight against pest and disease. Now, that means they're using many, many different pesticides. We call it the cocktail effect. So a mixture. It's not just the one pesticide on the plant. It's applying different pesticides at different times, but onto the same plant, onto the same soil. And no regulatory body is looking at that cocktail of pesticides. They look at the individual ones, but Mm -hmm. they don't look at the mix of them. So, for instance, in your own garden, when when, if you use a weed killer that contains glyphosate, we know that glyphosate uh, can cause cancer. But what isn't often said is what the glyphosate is mixed with. The other chemicals within that weed spray, they're known as surfactants. Mm. They help the glyphosate work better. Those surfactants are more toxic than the glyphosate. And we're not even discussing them. We're only discussing the glyphosate. Exactly. So you don't really know what's going into your body with this cocktail of, of poisonous chemicals. That's just incredible. So you, we, we, we've flagged up glyphosate, but completely ignored all the other accompanying chemicals that go with that product. Yeah, exactly. It's quite scary. It is enough to make you think, yep, I'm just going to eat organic. Well, I was going to say, I think if you want to avoid this, if you're worried about this, and I think it is probably a bit concerning, is eat organic, grow and eat organic food. I know it costs more and sometimes quite a bit more. And that's quite a difficult decision for most of us. I'd say grow as much as you can. You don't get the pesticides and you do get the nutrients. Yeah, exactly. Dr. Andrew Collins is a biochemist who spent much of his career studying cell damage and the vital role of antioxidants in food that goes towards repairing that damage. I met him to find out more about the complex world of DNA, free radicals and antioxidants. Andrew, you're a biochemist who's worked on human nutrition and disease, but more importantly, you are a member and a trustee of Garden Organic. So tell me about your work then, your your research work. In Cambridge, I was in a uh, research group in the Department of Zoology working on the damage that is caused to DNA The importance of DNA damage, of course, is that it can lead to mutations and mutations can lead to cancer. The damage is caused by reactive oxygen species, which are byproducts of respiration. I moved up to Aberdeen and developed a method for measuring DNA damage in human cells, human blood cells. It's very important that the cells can deal with the damage and deal with free radicals before they cause damage. So there are natural 
antioxidant processes in cells that can prevent the damage. I'm just going to stop you a minute, <clears throat> because I'm not a scientist, and I'm guessing quite a lot of our listeners aren't. Sure. Just to recap, the antioxidants are the good things, because yes. they help repair or prevent damage to the DNA. Yes. Yeah. The free radicals always sound like they've got a little hat on and a machine gun. Yes. They're the cells that are creating the problems, is that the, right? Yeah, free radicals are uh, they're oxygen molecules which have become sort of activated, which means they can oxidise other molecules very readily. So we were able to carry out a human trial. We had 100 men in their 50s, 50 smokers, 50 non-smokers. For 20 weeks, they were given either a placebo or a mixture of beta-carotene, vitamin E and vitamin C, which are well-known antioxidants. Because at that time, there was a strong feeling that antioxidants that are present in fruit and vegetables might be responsible for avoiding cancer and heart disease. And your research, to recap, your research was looking into the intake of antioxidants from foodstuffs. Well, we started off with this uh, trial where we used a, a combination of antioxidant pills, and that was very interesting because it showed a, a very clear decrease in DNA oxidation in those who were taking the antioxidants. So that sort of backed up this antioxidant hypothesis that antioxidants in fruit and veg were protective and that maybe you could boost your protection by taking pills. But at the same time, there were large-scale clinical trials going on where People were given antioxidants, particularly vitamin E and beta-carotene, for many years. And surprisingly, it turned out that taking pills was not protective and actually there was a slight increase in risk of cancer and mortality in those taking pills. How interesting. Why is that? And nobody knows, but um, my hunch is that uh, the antioxidants in fruit and veg are important, but it's no good just taking one of them. There's a, a need for a whole spectrum of antioxidants that are known to interact with each other. And if we translate that to food, you're saying that it's no good just eating a carrot a day, that won't solve the problem. Um, Would you say you need a mixed diet? Of course, we, but we did do an exp a trial with kiwi fruit. Uh, so here we were giving people one or two or three kiwi fruits a day. And uh, the idea was that kiwi fruits have a lot of vitamin C and maybe that was particularly protective. We found a very dramatic decrease in DNA oxidation, more than could be accounted for by vitamin C. So I assume it was because there were many other what we call phytochemicals. These are naturally, naturally occurring chemicals. Um, and the most exciting part of that trial was that we found a stimulation of DNA repair. So not only was DNA damage reduced, but the, the repair processes in the cells were stimulated. Now, I don't think it's just kiwi fruit, and other people have done trials with other kinds of fruits and found similar results. But I, it does emphasize that taking a whole food is, is going to be beneficial. And in your research, do you find that having organic food and fruit makes a difference? It is very, very difficult to design a trial that will actually show this definitively. Well, there is suggestive evidence. So it's known that organically grown fruit and vegetables have much higher levels of these phytochemicals. And because we believe that the phytochemicals are protective, it's reasonable to jump to the conclusion that organically grown fruit and vegetables are going to be more beneficial. That's very interesting. So from your point of view and your research, you think probably the organic diet is better? I think that is probably true. 
As I said, it's difficult to prove. There are little bits of evidence. For example, there was a uh, study in Norway of mothers and children, newborn children, and the mothers filled in a questionnaire, food frequency questionnaire, which reported what sort of food they were eating over the past year or so. And one of the questions was to do with eating organic foods. And it turned out that when they looked at the health of these mothers, they found that those who had reported eating organic foods had lower rates of preeclampsia. So that's the sort of thing we have to go on. It's very difficult to design a trial which would be long enough and we'd have to control the intake of the food. It would, be, it would need, a, need a lot of funding to, to do that and you'd need to choose the right cohort to study you'd need to follow them for years and then look at their rates of disease. And of course there's so many other factors involved. It's not just the yes. food you put in you, it's the lifestyle that yes. you have and, and the circumstances linked. in which you live. Yes, and there are links between you know, people who take a good diet and people who exercise and so on. It's very difficult to disentangle. And people who eat organically tend to take more care yes. over their diet and their lifestyle. Yes, yes that's yeah. very true. So it's kind of self-fulfilling. So we we're still waiting for a, a proper study to, to be designed and funded to test that. And I'm going to slightly push you on this one because I'm sure listeners will be interested. Would you therefore recommend a kiwi fruit a day? No. Um, <laughs> well, you, you should ask me if I eat kiwi fruit. <laughs> <laughs> do you eat kiwi fruit? I do fruit? occasionally, but um, not that often. I think any balanced diet containing fruit, it doesn't have to be kiwi fruit. But if you do eat kiwi fruit, the good news is you, only, you don't need to eat three. We got the same effect with one as with three. Oh, well, that's good to know. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. That's really helpful. And, and why is organic important to you? You've been a long-standing member of Garden Organic, and I know you grow organically yourself, and you live in Scotland, and, and you've built a straw house. There's something about your organic lifestyle. Why is it important to you? It's all to do with sustainability and uh, the environment. I'm a biologist. I believe in the cycle of things. I mean, composting has always appealed to me. And I don't like the idea that agriculture is dominated by big chemical companies like Monsanto. I think a lot of people would have sympathy with that Mm. view. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. You're a busy man, and thank you for taking time to talk to us. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. from the biochemist to the cook. Rachel de Temple has worked with Marco Pierre-White and Heston Blumenthal. She's not only a chef, she's a forager and a writer. You may have seen her book, Less Meat, More Veg. Rachel, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Rachel, you've worked as a chef, you've worked at River Cottage, yes. you've, you, you really are a cook. Yes, I am. (laughs) Anyone who's been in my kitchen will say that. And they'll also say I'm a gardener um, if they come into my kitchen because I have pots everywhere or bowls of stuff with lots of soil still on it. And organic food's very important to you, isn't it? It is on many, many levels. So you mentioned the book I wrote, Less Meat, More Veg. I have always had an interest in organic. And I think when I wrote that book, it was re- it really sort of came to the forefront of my thinking. I always I've always been really keen on organic fruit and veg, and 
and meat as well. But I think reading more about meat production made me realise how important organic meat is. Less Meat, More Veg is a very interesting book. And I assumed it would be yet another vegetarian cookbook. Mm. But actually, no, you go back to the basic principles of eating less meat by buying, say, a joint or something, Mm. and then making that joint last with different recipes through the week. Absolutely. It's kind of how our grandparents or our parents... Well, absolutely. And I think what's interesting is the whole book actually made me rewind to the the 40s and 50s in terms of, A, the way we used to cook, but also um, in terms of the way food was reared as well. Animal fat used to be the most, you know, the, the most abundant fat in our diet. We didn't have all these processed vegetable fats. And the research I was doing while writing the book, it made me understand the French paradox, for instance, where, you know, heart disease and cancer rates are lower and they're still eating loads of butter and cream. And it's because most of the, the, the what they're eating is, is from grass-fed, naturally reared animals. And in the States, I looked at the figures, the, the sort of instances of heart attacks and, and cancer and heart disease shot up almost rose exactly at the same level as the introduction of all these vegetable fats and process and all the hydrogenated fats so mm. which you get in biscuits and cakes and absolutely all, yes. and, and people you know frying the food in it as well and, and eating you know just processed food that that's saturated in this stuff and and it's interesting because if you're eating fat from an animal um, and that's why I champion using all of it and, you know, getting a joint. And I have, um, I've gone back to old-fashioned recipes, like doing a bolognese with the, you know, the leftover bits of, of meat and using the fat for that and making beef dripping, which a lot of people freak out by the idea of eating all that fat. But actually, it's highly nutritious, if, if, if and only if it's from a, mm-hmm. you know, a well-reared animal. And if you're, you know, if you want to guarantee it is, then it has to have that organic stamp on it. Or you have to know the farmer and know that they're adhering to those principles. Uh, because it's not just about um, chemicals and land management, but it's about welfare and and also health, massively about health. And I have loads of statistics in the book, and I can't remember them all off the top of my head, but, you know, an organic animal is living a natural life, it's eating the grass. And um, one thing that, you know, people always talk about oily fish and and oily fish tend to eat a lot of sea greens, and that's why they have higher and better ratios of omegas. But organic meat's the same thing. So the grass is giving them that same equivalent. And I always um, sort of compare it to, you know, if you're eating loads of watercress versus loads of white sliced bread, you know, industrialized animals are being fed a diet that's really unhealthy for them and not great for their digestive systems. And also, um, you do explain in your book that organic meat does have higher omegas. And therefore, you can cut down the amount of meat you eat. Absolutely. And also another thing to highlight, which most people are starting to become more aware of, especially in this country with sort of lack of um, intense sunshine. Um, We are getting a bit today, luckily. But is vitamin D. So a lot of people are deficient in vitamin D. And if you're eating animals that are reared outside, they actually are taking in some of that vitamin D and it is in their produce as well. So... Tim Ling and I um, have actually spent quite a few days this week together because we were on a panel in Bristol for Bristol Food Connections talking about what a sustainable plate of food looks like. And we said less food but more nutritionally dense and it's not just meat even but just less food in general so and I eat completely as much for pleasure as for nourishment but I think the two actually go really hand in hand and if you're eating something that you know is good for your body and it tastes nice as well then you're going to derive a lot more pleasure from it. 
Tell me about some of the work that you do. Uh, you work with River Cottage. Right? Yes, I do. So I have been working with River Cottage for three years. I approached Hugh Friendly Whittingstall, who I've always admired. It's always been, you know, a champion of organic. And the farm there is, is organic, so the small holding um, down in Devon and he uh, asked me to start teaching the preserves courses and I'm very keen on preserving. I did this crazy experiment. It was actually my first growing project after I wrote Less Meat More Veg which is really beyond the obvious message. It's about being connected with your food and knowing where it comes from and how it's grown and I live in a flat in London and I don't have a garden and I felt like I needed to make a deeper connection with my food so I helped set up a community garden in my local park and I had a garden share um, and so I decided to grow my own Christmas dinner. And um, yeah, Vegetarian Christmas dinner or did it involve a turkey? I, to be honest, would have happily gone vegetarian but I was feeding my family as well who weren't quite as keen. And they wanted the traditional Stretching roast. it, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I think um, through that I realised that year because it started in January... I learned the importance of preserving food um, and I started to um, yeah, preserve and I was communicating that to Hugh and he said, come and teach our preserving courses. And preserving goes much further than just making jams. It does. And this is a really interesting link to organic and where organic is really important. So at the moment, um, I'm writing a fermentation handbook for River Cottage. So one example is ginger beer. So I do these demonstrations and teaching people how to make ginger beer. And then I sometimes get people coming back saying it didn't work and I said where did you get your ginger from is it organic and they'll say no and every time I've had someone say it doesn't work it's because they've used non-organic ginger on the whole because it's treated so heavily and it's traveled so far there's nothing on it and um so I really communicate that with the fermentation story is that all fruit and vegetables have natural yeast and bacteria on the on the surface of them the lactobacillus that people herald in their in their yogurt is actually all over your organic fruit and veg and you're getting all those good you know good bacteria in your gut just from fruit and veg you don't have to go and buy yogurt um which is good news for vegans thank you you know um but oh, there's lots of vegan yogurts but but when you um, ferment, when you ferment them, then it multiplies that. But when you use organic produce, you're starting with a bigger colony of, of bacteria and yeast, and therefore the fermentation is, is more successful. And fermentation is very closely linked to the biome in your gut, Absolutely. which is something we're becoming much more aware of, aren't we? Absolutely. How individual that is to each individual person. Yeah, and I think... The understanding with that is really fascinating and actually opening up new areas and new ways of championing organic food as well. And one example, the other night I, was, I got home really late. I ended up feeding my son about half ten at night um, because he wanted pasta and I didn't have any. So I made it from scratch. And the reason I did that is I actually went to the shop to buy some and they didn't have organic. And I refused to buy non-organic because I know that wheat is one of the most heavily sprayed crops. And a lot of people think they have issues with gluten or with wheat, with carbohydrates. And actually, a lot of it has to do with the chemicals that are sprayed on conventional crops and that's what they're having a bad reaction to because it is like a sponge and and that's not being put out there quite as much but I think people are starting to understand that a little bit more that um, it's those mm. chemicals it's not the wheat or the gluten mm. um, but it's the chemicals so well. I have this wonderful image of you making your own pasta at 10 o'clock at night yeah, I know, it's time yeah. waiting for it that's <laughs> true true organic thinking yeah. it's impressive mm. Rachel you're also a forager 
I am, yes. And this is possible living in London? I host foraging classes in, I'm in East London, in Victoria Park. I can easily, every throughout the year, so I do it seasonally, I can at least find 20 different species of wild foods growing in the park. And some of them are trees that have been planted. But um, yeah, there's wild cherries, there's chestnuts, there's chickweed, there's um, goose grass, um, ground elder, wild violets. Um, you, yeah, you can just go on and on. Eating ground elder is music to a gardener's ears. Yeah. It's getting your final revenge. Well, this is, it? yeah. And what's funny is a lot of times when I take people on these walks, they realize their gardens are full of this stuff. And then they've been throwing them out as weeds. Um, so my allotment is half weeds that I love and celebrate. I've been making dandelion kimchi, my own dandelion line root coffee which is really delicious when you make it your own you have this lovely control over the flavor and um yeah i have lots of um goose grass which is a really good it's really good for your lymphatic system so it helps your body get rid of toxins um but what's interesting i'm i'm a what i love about wild plants is they're perennial perennial plants um go deeper into the soil and they tap into water but also they're tapping into nutrients that you know you can't get as well so i yeah i'm a huge fan of perennial plants and i'm someone who i have looked up to for a long time is mark diacono who was he was involved in setting the garden up at River Cottage in, in Devon and, and he's been a champion in selling on perennial plants and educating people about their benefits. Yes, we've just recently written a page on perennial vegetables and perennial planting on the Garden Organic website. But of course also those nutrients that are being collected by their roots goes into the leaves for your consumption but also for the compost heap. Absolutely. We know that dandelion leaves are full of potassium, mm, as are dock leaves. Absolutely, and nettles as well. And yeah, just so, absolutely. So all these sort of feeds that, um, yeah, that you make for the plants. Rachel, I can't let you go without giving us a recipe. This is the summer edition of the Garden Organic podcast. Can you pack up a picnic for us? Yes. Okay. Um, a big part of my allotment, I grow peas or edamame or broad beans. I love peas. They are the best thing if you grow them your own and eat them straight away. And I know that frozen peas are, you know, frozen within hours of, of you know, harvest. But if you compare a freshly picked pea versus a defrosted frozen pea, they're completely different products. And of course yours are organic as well. Absolutely. So I picked a really big bundle of um, peas the other day. I had a huge bowl full and my son and I, we potted all these peas and I tasted them and I actually thought, yeah, I'm not cooking these things because they are so delicious and to have it, because normally if you just pot it and eat it, but to have a concentrated bowl of that. So I actually, I've made before pesto with broad beans or peas, but I just had some toasted pine nuts and basil in this, with this raw peas. And actually that's really delicious, but you could turn that into a a tart as well and and bake it into a quiche um, or toss it it with pasta but just keep those peas raw and crunchy and um, yeah that would probably be my top summer recipe oh my mouth is watering already lovely thank you Rachel let's hope there's good weather to go with this picnic indeed thank you (laughs) thank you very much Rachel, wonderful ways with fresh peas, keeping her vegetables as fresh and as healthy as possible. I've moved back in-house and I'm here with Angie Ash, who's one of our school's education officers. She helps or encourage children to cook with vegetables and fresh produce. Angie, welcome. Hello. It sounds like a fun job. Tell me about it. It is a fun job. Um, so basically, I'm, I'm working as part of the Move More Eat Well project and there's a number of partners involved and it's working for Birmingham City Council 
delivering growing and cooking activities and training into schools. Move more, eat well. I like that yeah. combination. Yeah, it's because one of our partners are cis-trans and they're involved on getting people to move more. Yeah, and also with all the growing activities, they'll be moving more with that as well. So what sort of things are you getting the pupils to um, Well, we've developed a whole range of recipes for them um, and they're skills-based. So they go from sort of early years to key stage one to key stage two recipes. And they vary from leek potato soup to easy dips to lettuce wraps. I mean, it's endless, really. Ratatouille, there's all sorts of things they're making. Do you find it a challenge to get children to enjoy vegetables? Um, some children, yes, and then other children, no. The bonus is, if they've been growing them, um, they're generally more interested in wanting to try and eat them. Making um, that connection yeah. between what they've grown and what they're going to eat. Definitely, they get more enthusiastic about it. And even if they haven't had the chance to do the growing, I've found that, I don't know, I've been doing beetroot brownies with um, a group of secondary school children, and they spend the whole lesson saying how much they hate beetroot, and at the end of them, they're demolishing the brownies and saying they're going to take them home and trick their mothers, because their mother will say hated beetroot. Um, so we've got more making potato salads with potatoes that have grown in bags, in carrier bags. And a simple potato salad, yeah. just boil the potatoes? Yeah, we always get them to include plenty of fresh herbs. Um, uh, it's actually using olive oil instead of mayonnaise because invariably people buy store-bought mayonnaise. So it's a bit of a twist on, on your standard potato recipe. But Sounds delicious. Yeah. New potatoes, herbs and olive oil. Pretty much, yeah. Um, yeah, so they've been doing um, ratatouille, there are sagaloo, there's there's lots of different recipes we've we've developed. Um, Rachel has given us a recipe for fresh peas for our summer picnic. Have you got some ideas for a summer picnic? Yeah, well, there's a few things that would be being brought in for harvest at the moment. So there's courgettes, which I'd probably use in a similar way to Rachel, actually, which is using them raw. Oh, yes. Um, so I'd literally grate them, lots of extra virgin olive oil, salt and pepper, and that goes into salads or that goes into sandwiches or wraps or whatever. And I'm guessing you're going to add some garlic and some fresh mm. lemon to that? Yeah, yeah, that would work very well, yeah. Sounds great. So so obviously lettuce is is very abundant in the garden at the moment, as, as long as you've avoided the slugs. So lettuce wraps are just so easy to make. Um, so generally just get, wash a few leaves, um, sort of your round lettuce works quite well. So if you've made a hummus, so you can make a, just a simple bean hummus, it doesn't have to be chickpeas. How would you make the bean hummus? You'd need lemon juice. Um, you'd need a good extra virgin olive oil. Tahini, which has a lot of creaminess and then your bees, your beans, and you can have it whatever texture you want. So broad beans, are we talking about? Broad beans would work, butter beans. Um, it's pretty much any, I mean, it, I've done a similar thing with peas as well, and that works really well. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's very adaptable. Um, and you just whiz them up either with a stick blender or a jug blender, and again, the consistency is up to you. So you can have it very smooth or quite chunky, works well. And if you had it quite chunky, you could wrap it a lettuce yeah. leaf around it. And yeah. that's another thing for our summer picnic. And stick your courgettes in and that would work very well. And for people who have a sweet tooth. Oh yeah, so the beetroot brownies. Yes. Um, yeah, we like Can't that. Can't believe this is going to be nice. Yeah, well beetroot is quite an earthy flavour, so it goes well with all the chocolate. That obviously goes in the beetroot brownies and there is a lot of chocolate in it. Yeah. But um, And it's it's tricked a few of our secondary school children into eating lots of beetroot. Fantastic. <laughs> so. I've got a glut of spinach in my garden at the moment. Have you got any ideas what I could be doing with that? We do a really fun recipe and it's a spinach and tortellini salad. So you, your standard tortellini. So it's spinach, it's mustard, it's lemon juice, extra virgin olive oil and lots of cress. 
So we chop up all the cress and mix all that together. And that works really well. And do you cook the spinach? No, no. We, we just literally add it in and you find once you mix it, it, it ends up sort of breaking down slightly anyway with the lemon juice. So. And I'm also guessing that there's quite a few people with buckets of tomatoes ready, fresh to eat now. Now we know there's nothing more lovely than biting into a fresh homegrown tomato, but have you got ideas of, of cooking with them? We do a really good ratatouille recipe. Oh yes. Um, it's quite simple, so it doesn't use lots and lots of ingredients. Uh, it does use quite a lot of garlic, which is always good. Oh, I've got some garlic, so yeah. that's good. You start off frying the onions and the garlic. Uh, lots of tomatoes chopped up, fried off, and you add courgettes, um, we add aubergine as well. And then we, it's literally all about reducing it down, and that's the thing that gets all the flavour with that. Mm, I'm getting so hungry talking to you about <laughs> this. Angie, thank you very much. You've inspired you've made me hungry, but you've also inspired <laughs> me. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Well, our summer podcast picnic has come to an end. I hope you're as inspired in your kitchen as in your plot. Next month, Chris is back and he meets Adam Alexander, an extraordinary and committed plantsman. We also start to think about the autumn tasks of harvesting and seed saving. But in the meantime, why not drop us a line and tell us whether you've enjoyed listening? We'd like to hear from you. Which is your favourite bit of the podcast? Maybe you'd like more interviews or more tips and advice. Our email address is podcast at gardenorganic.org.uk or you can message us on Facebook. Thanks for listening and above all, enjoy your organic August. Our thanks to Kevin McLeod for providing the music.